everyone, and welcome back to From the Front Row. Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Dr. David R. Williams. Dr. Williams is currently a professor of public health, African and African American studies, and sociology, and he is chair of the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences at this Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He has done research here in the United States and globally, which has been published in leading sociology, psychology, medicine, public health, and epidemiology journals. He just presented a talk to a full house here at the University of Iowa College of Public Health titled Understanding and Effectively Addressing Inequities in Health. And now he's here to talk with us even further about his work, and we are so honored to have him on the show. My name is Anya Morozov, joined by Rada Villa-Murray, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they are relevant to anyone, both in and outside the field of public health. Thank you for coming all the way to Iowa City, and welcome to the show, Dr. Williams. Thank you. It's good to be here with you. I've had a great day. Yeah, so our intro didn't even really scratch the surface of your biography. So how did you get on the path you're on today, and what's your underlying why? Okay, so let me briefly talk about how I got on the path. I grew up on the small Caribbean island of St. Lucia, um, went to college in Trinidad. Uh, the college I went to was a Christian college. Uh, it offered uh, majors in multiple areas, but most of the majors were associate degrees. The only major that led to a bachelor's degree was, was in theology or religion. Um, I did that, and then I went on and did a, a master's degree in religion in the United States when I came to the United States. And in studying my master's degree in religion, I took a course in health. And I really thought that public health was a way in which I, I was committed. I was a child of the 60s, a child of the civil rights movement, even though I was outside of the U.S., but we followed closely what was happening in the United States. And I was very committed to making a difference for people. Um, that was what motivated me. Um, how do we improve the lives of others? And taking a course in, in health really convinced me that that is the area I should do. So I went from a master's degree, graduated with a master's degree in religion, and the next semester I was in the Master of Public Health program and finished my Master of Public Health program at Loma Linda University um, in Southern California and got a job in Battle Creek, Michigan. Uh, where I was working as a, for a hospital, but doing community health education, developing programs on how to stop smoking, how to manage stress, how to reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease, um, a weight management program. My first published paper was about the weight management program I developed uh, to reduce um, obesity. People in the community would sign up, come to this program. I would teach it with a dietitian and, and a exercise physiologist. Um, uh, to improve health. And while working as a public health educator, I, I was somewhat dissatisfied. I felt that my training in public health had given me the facts about public health, the data, but it had not really trained me to address the underlying problems and challenges people face individually how you could take a broader perspective in thinking of how to improve community health. And from that, I decided that sociology was the right major to understand the social context so that I could make a difference in the lives of others. And so I moved from that to do a PhD in sociology at University of Michigan, where I specialized in health. Um, 
and really was specializing in understanding the social and psychological factors that affect health. So that in, in brief captures my academic uh, training. And then from that, I started my career at Yale with a joint appointment in the sociology department and public health. After I got promoted at Yale, went back to University of Michigan, um, was there for 14 years as a faculty, primarily in sociology and the Institute for Social Research, which was a social science research institute. And from that, went to Harvard University, where I am again in both the social sciences and in public health. So that, in brief, gives you a sense of my intellectual journey. Yeah, a lot of your work talks about, or at least based on what I've understood, is about underlying um, factors to health. And one of those things is discrimination, mm -hmm. really important factor, especially from your talk earlier today. Mm -hmm. Could you define uh, discrimination to our audience? Sure. Uh, discrimination is the uh, occurs when when people are treated differently, and people are treated differently based on typically some social characteristic. You could be treated differently based on race, but you could also be treated differently based on your nationality, based on your sexual orientation, based on your weight, based on your age, uh, based on your sex. So it's, it's, it's a, a range of, of potential social bases on which people could be treated differently. And so if you think of the everyday discrimination scale, it asks people, not were you treated differently because of your race, but in your day-to-day -day life, how often are you treated with less courtesy and respect than others? How often do you receive poorer service than others in restaurants or stores? How often do people act as if they're afraid of you? It's just in little domains of life, uh, we're trying to get the sense that that person perceives that they were treated differently. And what we find is that people who report that, regardless of the reason, at the end of the scale, I ask people, what do you think was the main reason? People could say it was my sexual orientation, was my age, was my religion. Um, what we have found so far is that attribution does not matter much. So whether you treat it differently because of your age or because of your race doesn't make a difference in terms of its relationship to poor health. It's if you report high levels of being treated badly, your health is worse. So it's the stress of, of that unfair treatment, the stress of being treated as if you are unwelcome as if you don't belong, as if something is wrong with you, is consequential for health. Yeah, I kind of want to backtrack a little bit. You mentioned mm -hmm. the everyday uh, discrimination scale, and that's one of the scales that you have come up with in your yes. career. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about exactly what that scale is. You mentioned some of the questions on it. Um, I just want to know a little bit more about the scale itself and how you developed it. Sure. So. I was interested, um, out of my own experiences as a black person in America, I had had experiences where I have been treated unfairly uh, by the police. I have had experiences when my wife and I lived in Battle Creek, we were newly married and uh, moved in, renting an upstairs apartment from a nurse that worked at the same hospital I did, who happened to be white. And it was a predominantly white area. And a week after we moved in, late one evening, we heard something like a gunshot and looked outside the window and there was a cross burning on the lawn um, and oh the person God. had had fired a gunshot to let the whole community know um, that that was it. So I, I, I knew that the discrimination existed uh, because of race, but I didn't want to base a, a scale to capture discrimination based on my own experiences. 
I wanted to embed it more broadly in the experiences uh, that could be more generalizable than, than my idiosyncratic experiences, for example. And so what I did, I immersed myself in reading uh, qualitative published papers or books that described uh, the discrimination that black people experience in the United States, the work of Joe Fagan, a sociologist in the U.S., and Philomeno Essed was a Dutch scholar who studied black immigrants in the Netherlands and African-American women in California. So my scales, I developed three scales, and what the scales were trying to do was to try to put in words that could be administered to the general public the kinds of experiences that people had described in that qualitative research that I had read. And, and, and basically, what was I trying to do? These experiences are stressful, and I wanted to capture the stress of discrimination. So I guess as, as a Master of Public Health student who hopes to go into practice after graduation, um, one major focus of mine is trying to translate that research into evidence-based practice. Um, so how do you hope that the research involving the discrimination scales that you've created gets used? Well, first, the evidence is quite striking that people who report high levels of discrimination across a broad range of outcomes have worth physical and mental health. Research indicates that high levels of discrimination, like other types of stressful life experiences, are linked to biological dysregulation. It's not just in the person's head. It's not just even mental health and emotional symptoms, but we see fundamental changes in biological processes. So it says to all of us in society, in our communities, that we can be agents promoting life, or we can be agents promoting illness and death just by how we relate to each other on a day-to-day -day basis. So how we treat each other matters profoundly. That is one of the messages. Um, I think it's also important, um, the fact that discrimination has these negative consequences, to affirm the experiences of clients who might come to us and tell us they were being treated badly, and you say, just get over it, uh, forget it, and, and, and to document that, no, these are really powerful risk factors that have consequences for health. And of course, importantly, raising awareness levels that all of us understand that we should treat each person we encounter with the dignity and respect that they deserve. And in so doing, we are not just being nice to them, but we are really uh, promoting their health um, and, and that we can be an agent of change in a sense by, by how we interact with others and affirm them. So I, I think there are really important lessons for us. It's not a risk factor we normally think about of discrimination as a risk factor we need to address. The lessons you're sharing, very important. And I'm really glad that you came here today to talk to us about it. But I just kind of want to know how you get your message and all of your research and the, the change you want to see out into the real world. Do you know what I mean? Um, like how you get those interventions planned and how it happens? Because we can talk about it in academia, but I want to know more about how it happens in the real world. 
Um, it, it's a good question. So I am primarily an academic. So I, I teach. Just your thoughts, you know. I, no, no, no. But I, I teach courses at the university. I, I think that by training the next generation, um, that that is having an impact. That my students are learning um, about what are the factors that affect health, and they're going out to be leaders in public health and in other domains of life. Um, that's that's one. Um, secondly, um, we, we publish uh, these findings, so they are being placed in the scientific literature, so the scientific community around the world is, is following this. My everyday discrimination scale has been used in more than 30 countries of the world. We just published a paper two weeks ago looking at the impact of everyday discrimination on the health of the Aboriginal population in Australia, and I collaborated with scholars studying Aboriginal health uh, to, to do this. So, so first of all, it, it, it's having a global impact at that level. Some of our work, not all of our work, gets um, media attention, public media attention. Even 60 Minutes in the United States was interested in the everyday discrimination scale and had an interview with me about discrimination and its impact um, as an example of, of media pickup of these and which reaches a larger, broader audience. And certainly there have been multiple newspaper articles about the role of discrimination and the stress that it, it, it does. So, and, and importantly, um, in the early days, I could have counted on one hand uh, the scholars in the world who were doing discrimination when I started out. Today, um, there are hundreds of people studying discrimination around the world. Um, so I think there is greater awareness in the field, there's greater awareness in the public, um, and uh, um, what we are trying to do is to create a kinder, gentler society <laughs> and world <laughs> where we treat each other uh, with dignity and respect. I mean, that's respect. what we need. Yes, that's yeah. what we need. <laughs> yeah, and I do think, like... Um, what, what the scale has done is it's very easy to, I guess, refute claims, but when you have the, the huge amount of data backing them, it's a lot harder to refute that this is an issue that we need to do something about. And so then you can move that conversation towards solutions. Yes, absolutely. Thank ultimately <laughs> always want to do solutions yes yeah, thanks for sharing your opinion i didn't mean to like spring that on no. you but i i don't know i was curious because you always hear about all these you know i i learned so much in the classroom but i'm fortunate that i'm in a master's program and i can learn about these things sure. but i keep thinking about what if i wasn't in this setting like how would i yeah. learn about these interventions or how would i learn about public health practices how would i learn about these things but you bring up you know the media you bring up all the interventions mm -hmm. that are happening i i thought you know the the thing you mentioned where um, you're you know, just recently getting published on a mm -hmm. study in Australia, like mm -hmm. that's amazing. Mm -hmm. So I, that, I don't know, it gives me a little bit of faith about how mm -hmm. all this mm -hmm. stuff is getting disseminated yes. out there. I've done work on everyday discrimination on health with, uh, in South Africa. Um, I have collaborated with colleagues in Brazil and in, in Chile. Um, have you done anything in your hometown? Um, no. Oh. <laughs> Sorry. I, okay. I've done talks in my hometown, but I haven't done a study in my hometown. Okay. Well, I don't know. I just thought yeah. we're, if we're throwing out places, I thought I'd bring that up. Okay. Um, I'm going to change the topic a little bit. How about we talk more about the future? You mentioned that public health professionals are the future or like you are educating the future public health professionals. So a lot of us, you know, we're going to be future professors, we're going to be future healthcare administrators, we're going to be future uh, practitioners, etc. So um, I was wondering if you had any advice, just in general, 
to give to the up-and-coming scholars on you know racism socioeconomic status discrimination anything you would like to share about that is a, a really difficult question for me because <laughs> I'm really throwing is, out the hard hitters no it, it but it's a good question uh, for us to think about um clearly um public health is more than just issues of race and racism and discrimination and uh, these are important issues that have historically been neglected so we we want to pay attention to them i i think my message um that I would want to say to public health um, uh, students in general um, is that we can make a big difference. We can make a big difference for the health of communities. When the average American thinks about health, they think about access to medical care or they think about health behavior. And both of those are important, but we need to understand them in, in the broader context of social and economic opportunities and of opportunities to be healthy in the places where we spend most of our time, our homes, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces, our houses of worship. All the opportunities to be healthy in all of those places shape our health. And so I would encourage um, young persons in public health, going into the public health field, to keep this broader perspective. We need to work at every level. We need to work at the level of the individual, but at a level of small groups and institutions, but also at a level of the community. There is a lot that we can do to improve health. And for those who are in the United States, while I talk about racial disparities in health, what the data from public health tells us, that even the best of Americans could be doing better in terms of health. Let me give you a concrete example. When we talk about racial inequities in health, we typically look at the health of blacks or Native Americans compared to the health of whites. If we look at the rankings of life expectancy in the world, if white America were a country, it would rank 32nd in the world on life expectancy, behind Costa Rica, behind Cuba. So there's a report from the National Academy of Medicine that shows even the best of Americans in terms of health. College-educated Americans who do not um, smoke and exercise regularly have worse health than their counterparts in Western Europe. So all of us need to be doing better in terms of health. So we need to think of strategies that seek to improve the health of all, even as we give an extra helping hand to those of low income and low education and racial ethnic minorities who are even further behind and have a longer way to go. But th there is a, a, an effort that we have to focus on all of us in terms of a commitment to better health. That stat was staggering. Yeah, 30 seconds, wow. <laughs> yes. And, and, and I think the important point that public health needs to remember is that the solution is not just medical care. According to the World Bank, half of the money spent on medical care in the world annually is spent in the United States. We are 4% of the world's population, consume one half of the medical resources in the world, yeah. but rank near the, the bottom of the industrialized <laughs> world on health. So, so it highlights the importance of just, uh, yes, medical care is important, but we also need to think of the factors outside the healthcare system 
managing stress, um, taking the, those steps that promote health, like getting regular exercise, for example, um, getting adequate sleep. All of these are, are drivers of good health and all of these uh, need to be engaged. And of course, giving everyone the opportunity to feel valued and, and feeling that they have the resources to capitalize on the opportunities of the society in which they live. Yeah, just just kind of taking a much more holistic view of yes. health beyond <laughs> absolutely beyond the the like hospital setting itself. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, sorry. Oh no, it's, it's not a competition globally to see like who which country is healthier. But like if you, like just putting that into perspective, that the amount of money we spend on healthcare versus how we stand. Like yes. again, everyone deserves the right to be healthy. It shouldn't be a competition. But like just thinking about like that staggering difference is concerning. Well, the point is that there are many countries spending a lot less money than we do and have better health outcomes than we do. Mm -hmm. And we know the reason why. Most of our expenditure, according to the CDC, only about 3%, 2 to 3% of the money spent on medical care in the United States, in the United States is spent on prevention. So our healthcare system largely functions as a repair shop that does a good job of taking care of us once we get sick, but it's not a driver of whether or not we get sick in the first place. And it's the factors outside the healthcare system that determine that, and so we need to have that balance. That's where public health comes in. Exactly. At least that's what yeah. we're learning exactly. about. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's the essential role of public health. That's what we're trying to do. And that actually kind of leads into another question, um, kind of based on the vast amount of research you've done or people have done based on your work, um, if you could change a few things about our system, our public health system or our healthcare system, what would they be? Um, maybe you could talk about a few of the examples you mentioned earlier today. Sure. If I could change a few things about a healthcare system, number one, I would ensure that every person in this country has access to high quality medical care. Um, And importantly, there was a study done in the state of Delaware um, where the state of Delaware had large racial disparities in colorectal cancer screening, uh, uh, cases of colorectal cancer, and deaths from colorectal cancer. And they made a commitment to make colorectal cancer screening and treatment available to everyone in the state. And they did outreach to those communities, poor communities, minority communities, to make sure everybody's aware this is available. And what they were able to do in, in about six years to eliminate the racial gap that had existed in colorectal cancer screening, so that everyone was getting screening at, a, at the same rate, one. Two, to eliminate the racial gap that existed in the incidence on new cases of colorectal cancer um, uh, in, the, in the first place, and three, they eliminated over 90% of the gap in colorectal cancer mortality. And wow. this is all done in a very short window of time uh, based on um, what they were able to do um, in the state of Delaware. So it shows that it can be done. And you know what the best part about this? They eliminated these gaps, and you said, well, they were spending more money. They were bringing more money in to provide a screening and provide a treatment. Yes, it costs more money, but the savings from the treatment of colorectal (laughs) cancer 
they had a net gain of $1 million wow. per year in that. It's a relatively small state. Um, uh, the, it, in other words, the program costs eight, $8 million a year, and they were saving $9 million a year. So the, the net gain was a $1 million a year. So the state actually saved money by implementing the program, guaranteeing access to this treatment. Now, I'm not naive. I don't think that will be true of every single medical procedure and every single outcome, but it's an example of we can accomplish a lot. So ensuring everyone has access to care is important. Two, a greater emphasis on preventive care. Uh, we, want, we don't want to wait until people get sick. We want to enable people to take the steps that they need so they can prevent illness before it occurs. That's, that's number two. Number three, we want to create an environment where everyone has the opportunity to live a full and productive life. That means they, they get the, the skills and, and, and strategies they need so they can uh, work, get a good job with, that, with a decent pay to take care of themselves, to take care of their families, their children, um, and so on. That is, an, that is a good job is a health-enhancing strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, we need to recognize that. And certainly, we need to help everyone manage all of the stressful conditions of life. Now, we've talked about discrimination, and importantly, discrimination is one type of stressful life experiences that we have not historically assessed. But it's not the only type of stress. People have financial stress. People have relationship stresses. People have stresses at work. So we need to create those um, supportive environments in which people can thrive. And, and, and those would be the places I would start in terms of thinking, what <laughs> could we one. do? Yeah, just three steps. <laughs> now the here's the Three yeah. steps to world peace. <laughs> yeah. So you just mentioned overwhelming stress and how that yes. can cause people pain. Yes. And, you know, you mentioned poverty, discrimination, yes. how it's all overwhelming. Yes. And I'm overwhelmed just thinking about it. But how do you stay hopeful? despite all of these things. And your, your work is inf- very informative, but it's very, it really makes you reflect a lot. You know what I mean? How do you stay hopeful despite all of this? Because or in, in light of all of this? I, I am an optimist. Yes. Um, I see the glass as half full. In spite of all the challenges that we face, I see greater awareness, greater knowledge, greater engagement around the world on many of these issues. So the glass is half full and not half empty. Um, And uh, to be honest with you, my greatest signs of hope are my students. I have students (laughs) who want to make a difference, who are motivated, who are less patient than I am (laughs) with the status quo and want to transform the world and make it a better place. So as I look at, at, at the students I teach, and I, I don't think it's just my students that I, I teach like, at Harvard. <laughs> I was like, I was the, like the, we're not directly your students, but I'm going to take the compliment yes, anyway. Yes, yes, it's, it's, um, we have a generation of young people who want to build a better world, who want to see things better. And honestly, they are a source of inspiration for me and a source that 
what I've done is not in vain. Um, there are people taking heed to what I've done. There are people who are going to take this torch people and listening. run with it. Exactly. Yeah. So that for me is, is certainly a source of optimism and hope. Yeah. You know, it makes us feel good about what we're doing. You know, we took the decision to come here and spend a couple of years in our life just, you know, entrenched in this field and trying to, entrenched sounds morbid, but you know, we're, we're, we're deep inside, you know, yes. we're trying to learn. And every now and then, like, it, it can get kind of sad seeing some of the hardships people face mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe we might not have been aware of before or hardships that we faced on our own that uh, we see are much bigger problems that than just our own personal issues. So it's really, it's rewarding to us to know that someone as experienced as you looks at us and, or your students, I guess. And yeah, <laughs> students that and, I encounter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sees that, uh, you know, we I just spoke to potential. some of the American Public Health Association <laughs> meeting. I spoke at a session there and there were lots of students there. So yes, it's, it's students in general. Yes. Thank you, thank you. Yes. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just fishing. I know. <laughs> but yeah, well, we have one last question for you. Do you want to ask it? Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a question we ask to all of our guests on the show. Um, what was one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? We like to know this one. It's really funny. What was one thing... <laughs> you thought you knew. I thought I knew. But we're later on about. But I was wrong about. It's a toughie. That is a toughie. <laughs> I, I am I am racking my brain. <laughs> no, I really am. I'm racking my brain to think of what was one thing I thought I knew. It doesn't and, have to be insightful. It and, could be like, I didn't know that bubble tea had tapioca pearls inside of it i thought it was gelatin or you know you know you could you could say whatever you want well i i i learned a a lot about public health here at the university of iowa that i didn't know before i didn't know that this department came out of a medical school just a few years ago that it's a relatively young school of public health um and that it's making a difference in so many ways so i have learned a lot from this journey that I didn't know about, uh, you know, you, you think of, of Iowa's in the Midwest. Um, it's a, a place where there isn't a lot happening. And I've learned about a lot of good things that have taken place here. So it has certainly broadened my horizons of, of the great opportunities you have as students here um, uh, to learn and to be prepared to make a difference in the future. I remember you saying in the beginning of your talk earlier that you've driven through Iowa before, but That's you true. haven't stopped. So that is true. what you were, uh, you thought you knew, you thought you knew Iowa was yeah. a drive-through state, yeah. but now you know that it has a really cool public health college. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just no, which is absolutely true. Where there are people who are being trained and making a difference, and and I, I came because I got an invitation from your dean. I saw it and instantly I said I'm going to go because um, I, I knew her, she was a great colleague at Michigan uh, where, where we taught. Um, so yes, it's, it's been great to be here and to learn more and to put Iowa on my mental map. <laughs> We're happy to have you. Yes. Um, well, do you have any kind of final thoughts about anything we've talked about today before we wrap up? Well, I, I would say I am very impressed with the fact that two busy, MPH students have taken the time to create a program that I understand you have listeners, not just in this community, but even overseas. Um, I just want to commend you on your vision 
and dedication because I know it takes hard work. It takes making this a priority um, uh, in your lives to do it. Um, but that's the kind of innovation and that's the kind of thinking outside the box it will take to move the field of public health forward. And so you, both of you are a source of personal inspiration to me because you're blazing oh. a path. <laughs> no, I'm serious. You are blazing a path. And that's exactly the kind of thinking and the kind of actions that we need to not be stuck in doing things the way we've done them before, but to think of the opportunities that exist and to maximize them. Yeah, I think one of the most powerful messages that I got from your talk earlier today was um, when you were talking about that project in Georgia mm -hmm. um, and the fact that like it can be done. It can be done. Um, exactly. What was the name of that? Uh, Purpose-built communities. Purpose-built yeah. communities, yes. and it was a community that had transforming a public housing project into an oasis of yeah. people doing well, of high employment, of of high quality education and everything else. Yes. So if they can do it, so can we. Yes. Exactly. And hopefully yeah. we will once once we get off this episode, we will go and make changes. So yes. thank you so much for taking the time to come to the college. I hope you have enjoyed your time in Iowa. Um, and I think we'll just wrap up there. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. David Williams for joining us today. This episode was hosted and written by Rada Vella-Murray and Anya Morozov, and edited and produced by Anya Morozov. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook, and our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can always reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode was brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care.